Hello and welcome to Halftime Scholars, the series that features the interesting work of independent and emerging researchers. On this episode, we speak with Isabella Gonsalves, a doctoral candidate at Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz, Germany. Her research project aims to understand how media frames migrants and refugees to understand the similarities and differences of representation between the global south and global north. Her research specifically focuses on the framing of migrants and refugees through the use of metaphors and the citation of different actors when covering immigration issues. Welcome Isabella, thank you for joining Halftime Scholars. Thank you very much. I'm really happy for the invitation and I'm looking forward on discussing a bit more about my research and talking about uh, what we love, that's academic uh, life and so on. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's why we have you here. Let's start then. If you can tell us a little bit about your journey before your PhD work. I'm actually from Brazil. The listeners are probably wondering because of my surname and so on. People will sometimes ask me if I'm from Portugal, but no, I'm from Brazil. So I did my bachelor and my master there at the University of Juiz de Fora. Let's say a small city for Brazilian standards, but a big city for German standards and European standards. There I did my bachelor and master, and uh, I also worked on research there. In Brazil, we have the undergraduate research program, so you get a scholarship while studying your bachelor, and I was then in the undergraduate research program. And I was working back then in media and memory. So I was basically mapping old newspapers in my city, what alternative newspapers they were producing in 1970 and 1980. And after I did also my master and during my master, I also had a scholarship. In my master, I was working on the relationship between journalism and memory and how newspapers use the past to communicate, uh, let's say, authorship, authorship and uh, to communicate uh, a leadership and uh, test at, they state themselves as a testimony of the past. So that was my line of work. And now I always wanted to study in Germany, to do my PhD in Germany, because I had a scholarship also for doing my exchange program here. I really love Germany and I wanted to come back and that's why I'm here now. I applied for a scholarship from DAD, which is the German exchange organization. I got funded for that and now I'm doing my PhD program here at the University of Mainz. That's really interesting and very interesting journey in terms of how you started into your work looking at political communication and then transitioning to studying in Germany itself. So maybe if we go one step forward and look at your PhD project, what you are currently working on, if you can talk a little bit more about the project itself, what are the research questions, broad topics you are looking at right now? Yes, I was always interested on political communication, but back then I was in a project of media and memory, so I liked to transition to political communication. During my master, there was Venezuelan refugee crisis, and I was seeing how the newspapers were representing refugees. This annoyed me because you see this, those stereotypical representations and the way those representations are always repeated in different news media. I thought it's a good research question there. Maybe it's a good idea to analyze that. And back then I looked at the scholarship of Brazilian scholars on the representation of migration. And it was a topic that was not so well studied in Brazil and uh, about Brazil as well. 
the topics on the representation of migration was really well studied in Europe, but was mainly focused on the global north. So you would find a lot of work on countries such as UK, Netherlands, Germany, but not so much on the global north. But since I wanted to come to Germany, I thought that focusing only in Brazil wouldn't be the best approach to it, also strategically speaking. So I also included a global North country to have a, a comparative approach and also to have a more selling research project as well, because then I could connect on populism as well, because the populism was growing in Brazil back then. And uh, Bolsonaro as a candidate was selling himself as this person of the people for Brazilians and uh, migrants was also enemies in those kinds of speech. So I thought that maybe it would be a good idea to compare with UK, because then you would have two countries with uh, a rising populism and how media was representing it. That's very interesting. And I think there is a lot of topical issues that are happening around the world in terms of populism, the way migrants are represented. Maybe if you can go back one step and you looked at from the literature that you looked at from, from the Venezuelan experience and the Brazilian experience, were there any similarities there? In case of similarities, what I was looking at was not exactly on the migratory experience of Venezuelans to Brazil. I was looking more on the representation of Venezuelans and other migrants and refugees. That was like broadly speaking, not only Venezuelans, how the news media in Brazil was representing them. And when you compare it to other countries, let's say European countries or also Latin American countries, the discourses on it, they are really similar. Usually you have those representations that you always have tension in between in-groups and out-groups. So you would see like media representations on the problems that migrants and refugees cause to the host country. And this host country is usually represented as a victim, as something that's being threatened by those migrants and refugees. And when the representation is softened, not so threatening for migrants and, and refugees, the other representation that you see are refugees, especially refugees as victims. So they are always portrayed as this huge mass of people. And usually this mass of people is unified. So you see an uniformization of this group of people and you don't see the personal stories of those migrants. You basically talk about a group that's coming or going to a country when you talk about a group, you are then making them less humans in a way because uh, people don't relate to them. They see numbers. They don't see personal stories. And that's why there are a lot of scholars already seeing there is a connection on the way that news media represent migrants and refugees and also the rise of populism, because especially in Europe, the rise of populism was really connected with the Syrian migratory crisis. And the populist parties, they claim ownership for these issues. So they sell themselves as parties that are combating the arrival of migrants and refugees. And when they claim ownership for that, the population see that they are qualified to deal with these issues. So they vote for them. Yeah, so that's quite interesting. As you said, the in-group, out-group, the threat, the uniformity of the entire group being one without having the personal stories. And there are claims of one type of party that is going to address that issue in that specific state. 
This seems to be a quite a global phenomenon around the world. It can be with different ethnic groups or total foreigners who come from another country. It's a way of selling the message of probably winning power and existing. If we take that one step forward, Isabella, in your opinion, seeing the rise of populism in your home country of Brazil and studying also in Germany and the European context, do you feel that some of these populist leaders who have actually taken power have actually addressed not only the issue of migration, but the other pressing issues of those countries? What are your some broad thoughts around that? The thing is that sometimes the public opinion it's used, sometimes not, but usually the public opinion is used for addressing public policies. When you see that the public opinion is worried about migration, the politicians and also the political agenda will come towards it. And actually that happened, not just in Brazil, but in other countries as well. In Brazil, for instance, Brazil was part of the Migratory Compact for Migration, which is a UN compact, ways of accepting migrants, ways of integrating migrants, having standards for the issue. And when Bolsonaro was elected, already like in the beginning of uh, his mandate as a politician, as a president of Brazil, he left the Global Compact. And that's quite symbolic and also says a lot. It says that Brazil as a country is not welcoming refugees and migrants. You see a lot of hostile statements against migrants and refugees. It's not just show off. Sometimes I think that people, when they think about populist leaders, they think that's just them showing off. That's actually not happening much on the country, not changing much on the country. A lot of Brazilian fellows that I talked to in Brazil, for instance, uh, I don't know, like people on the street, they say, oh, it's okay if Bolsonaro gets elected because nothing will change. Politics doesn't change much. He will have a team there and uh, he will be assisted, but it won't change much. But actually change. You see a lot of change, not only in migratory policy as well, but also in environmental policy as well. In a way, when you are electing someone that is willing to combat migration and is selling himself as someone that is not willing to accept migrants and refugees, it will have serious consequences on the public policy towards it as well. So not in Brazil, not just in Brazil, but also in other countries as well. In the example in UK with the Brexit, Brexit was a consequence on public opinion that was against migrants, especially migrants from Western Europe. The migrants, they were portrayed in media as those economic threats, those people that come to steal our job. And then you have a very serious consequence that's the, a country leaving European Union. And that's just one example that can happen. If you give platform to those kinds of discourses and to those kinds of uh, politicians, even by quoting them, you are already raising silence to them and uh, giving and selling them as people that can deal with those problems, that have ownership towards those problems. And that's very serious on the longer run, let's say. Yeah, that is uh, very true. And I think, as you said, there is no situation where nothing will change. Some things do change and that dramatically shifts the way the world functions because we can see what is happening around the world today. You alluded to Bolsonaro and his election. I understand there's an election coming up in Brazil in a little while. What has changed from the time Bolsonaro has been elected to now? Has public opinion in Brazil changed? Is it the same or is it very apathetic? Whoever is there is the same. What is your take on that? 
it changed a lot, especially because of the pandemic, because Brazil was one of the countries with the largest shares of uh, death. When you take the entire population of Brazil, the number of deaths per 100,000 people, per 100,000 inhabitants, Brazil was one of the countries with the largest share. And that was really serious because a lot of people lost family and uh, friends. And uh, while they were grieving, Bolsonaro was stating that it was just a flu and just the weak people were dying or the old people were dying. So I think that changed a lot, the opinion of people towards Bolsonaro. And not just that, also the economic situation in Brazil got really worsened. With the time when Bolsonaro was elected, Brazil was the 10th largest economy in the world, and now it's the 12th, so you lost two positions. A lot of people are now unemployed, and the hungry, the problem of hunger that was not a more an issue in Brazil is now back again. So you see not only an unemployment, but the lack of basic needs for the people. Bolsonaro lost a lot of support because of that. And we see an increase of the popularity of Lula, the best president of Brazil. It's very likely this public podcast will be published in November. So it will be already over the election by then. But it's very likely that Lula will be the next president, a portrait of the entire situation. And I think that happened not only in Brazil, but also in other countries in Latin America. You see that the pandemic made the population in different spheres of the world understand that the government has to be not only talking about out groups, but also good to, on doing public policies for health, education, and those issues, usually the populist parties, they don't have ownership for. They just know how to deal with hate, hatred, but they don't know how to deal with the basic needs of the population. Yeah, that's very interesting analysis. And I totally agree with you. It's a similar situation in my home country of Sri Lanka as well. We also had populist ethno-nationalistic approach. And within two and a half years of that president's mandate, the country actually went bankrupt and we had to default on our loans. And that president, you may have noticed, was driven out of the public, turned against them and actually drove them out of power. But I agree with you, the populist parties don't take ownership of everyday kitchen table issues, the economy, food security, energy security, education and things like that. So that's really interesting. I think if we move one step forward, Isabella, so you, we spoke about this topic area of how refugees are represented in Brazil and also in the UK or European context, and you're doing a, a comparative study. I understand that. If you talk a little bit more about the methodology itself, how does that work or what is your ideas around that at this stage? Well, I work with content analysis mainly. When you work with content analysis, you have to establish a code book first off, and this code book usually answers to the questions that you are thinking on answering on your studies. I worked on a code book that was dealing with the framing. So I established the main frames of literature and also the quote sources and so on. And then I analyzed the newspapers through this code book. After that, I also worked with discourse analysis for a, a smallest share of the corpus. My corpus had more than 1,000 news articles. And then I took 10% of it to work with discourse analysis to identify metaphors. I'm working with, a, with accumulative dissertations. 
My first chapter will be probably a meta-analysis on the effects actually of uh, framing migrants and refugees in public opinion. I'm taking different studies on it and doing a meta-analysis and to justify why it is important to study representation of migrants and refugees. And then I have a literature review on the representation of migration and refugees in studies on Brazil and the UK. And then I have the empirical part. So I have two papers using quantitative content analysis and one paper analyzing metaphors. Basically, then I have five papers that I hope that they will be published and I can defend my dissertation afterwards. That's quite interesting. So that means you are some way a long journey in terms of the PhD. And are you doing the PhD by publication mostly or defense? How does that work? Or you have to do some findings as well. Is that something that you have already found? Do you have findings already or are you in the process right now? No, I have findings. I already have three papers that are ready, one published, and two of them in this peer review process. The content analysis papers, they are in this peer review process. And my fourth paper, I'm working on it now. It's on metaphors. And I'm also working in my fifth papers. The thing is that according to my regulations at the university, I have to publish at least three papers. If I have one, I still have two missing. And how it works? You send a paper to a journal and then you have a minor major correction or rejection and you have to reshape the paper and improve the paper, send to another one. So it's a working process. Those two, they are ready, but they are not ready in a way as well, because it depends on the publication process. When I finish like the publications, I will make a dissertation all out of the publication, but the publications, they are like uh, chapters in my dissertation. That's the idea of the cumulative dissertation. You will write usually an introduction, and this introduction has the ground, the, the justifications for why you wrote those papers and how those papers connect together, and afterwards you have those the papers papers that were published. Yeah, so that's a very interesting, I think I'm hearing this for the first time in terms of the cumulative dissertation. I understand there's a journal by publication, and I understand there's a traditional manuscript option, but this is the first time I'm hearing about this kind of hybrid approach of doing the publication, but then also putting it all together. So that takes us nicely into, you mentioned you have findings. So what are some of the key findings you found? And was there anything that surprised you? Yes, actually, what surprised me was because when I started looking at the representation, the framing of migrants and refugees, I thought that the UK would be more negative than Brazil in terms of representation, but they are quite similar in a way. That was a surprise for me because when I thought about it, when you could take the two contexts separately, Brazil is now mostly a sending nation, while UK is mostly a receiving nation. And Brazil as a country was very built through migrations. Usually their stereotype about Brazilians are that they are really nice and welcoming. And this is also because of migration itself, because a lot of Europeans, they went to Brazil in the 20th century after the war or, uh, and before the war. And uh, Brazil was always welcoming towards migrants, not so much about African or Latin American countries, but about European migrants. Because of it, it became a stereotype. But when you look at the representation itself, it says a bit of this colonizing culture. You see like more positive representation towards European migrants and a more negative representation towards Latin American migrants and towards Afghan migrants as well, and also towards Asian migrants. This 
hierarchy of migration that's also seen in other countries. So in a way, Brazil relates a lot with other European countries. And I think that's also a heritage of uh, colonialism because there is still this culture that we have to work on, this colonial past and the colonial way of thinking that Western institutions are better, Western way of thinking is better. And this is, is still seen in the culture of the Brazilian population in a way. That's quite interesting. I think the hierarchy you mentioned and also that colonial way of thinking. So this is a very fascinating, uh, I guess, findings. And I'm sure there's more areas that might come about. I guess if we move along in today's discussion, Isabella, what are some other broad challenges you have faced in doing the PhD, in doing the research? How did that pan out? I think that the biggest challenge for me was uh, learning how to do research again, because uh, coming from Brazil, we have more critical studies and uh, a very large influence from French school and also Latin American school. So we in communication studies, we don't use so much quantitative studies. And here in Europe, it's very common to use quantitative studies and statistics to, in different studies. And I had to learn it and it was really challenging. But it was nice as well, because I think that uh, PhD, in a way, it shouldn't be easy. If it's easy, maybe you are in the wrong, in the wrong place. Like uh, maybe if I was in my old university, I would be still in my comfort zone, like using the same methods, using the same scholars, maybe in the same research line as well, the same research, like taking continuity on it. I changed my top entirely, which was a rather challenge because I had to also learn a new scholarship on it and also learn different methods that I had no idea. I had to learn how to use SPSS and then R and different quantitative analysis methods as well, statistics, and that was really challenging, but it was really nice as well. I think that when you look back and you think, oh my God, when I start learning statistics, I was like, I will never learn it. It's impossible. How people understand that? And also with other things like SPSS and R, I'm always like that. In the beginning, when I start learning and I'm like, I can't do it. But then you do it. Like if you work on it, you do it. And that's, I think, rewarding. The most rewarding part of the PhD process, I guess. Yeah, statistics is a quite interesting method. And, and also you mentioned like new packages or new software that you have to learn, which is there's quite a lot. And there's every day there's something new that comes along. As you go along, you learn a lot of things. That's really good. And it's a good that the rigor is there in terms of what you learn and how you get about your findings and how you present your research. If we move on, what are some of the other collaborations and other projects you are doing or you're hoping to do at this stage? I'm now in a network of researchers on digital uh, electoral campaigns, and uh, it's a very global network. We have scholars from Europe and also from Latin America as well, and uh, it's growing. A lot of scholars are joining it, and uh, we are doing comparative analysis on electoral campaigns, and this network is called the DigiWorld. In this network, I'm uh, doing the research on Brazilian elections. They built a very large codebook for analyzing campaigns in Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. Then I have to do the content analysis of those topics and then collaborate with uh, scholars analyzing different countries and uh, write awesome papers comparing countries that were never compared. So that's really exciting and I'm really looking forward to it. 
We are now in the data collection part because the digital campaign in Brazil is still running. We have the first round of votes in 2nd of October and the second round of votes also in October. But after we are collecting the data and then I have to analyze it together with my colleagues as well. And we then will have a lot of interesting findings to share, I hope. Yeah, so that looks very topical and quite using the skills you've learned in other areas to further research. That's quite interesting. And I think if you take that one step forward, what do you think some of the broad practical applications of your findings from your PhD and you know the work that you're doing, what are some of those practical applications you think you feel of your research? I think that one practical application that I want to do is writing more reports that can be read by journalists. Because I think that sometimes when we publish a lot of papers, the market won't read it. So I want to make some posts, blog posts on journalistic associations and so on. Because I think that those findings, they can help journalists think about how they write because sometimes it's just automatic it's just like us we as academics we have a way of writing and we repeat it and we just do it with time because it's what our profession asks from us but sometimes you don't really think about it we don't think why our paper is our structure introduction and then literature review and then method and then findings and then final considerations discussion and so on we don't think about it we just do and i think that's the same about journalists we can't let's say say that they are making stereotypical presentations on refugees and migrants on purpose they just read a lot of news articles on it and they get ideas and they write as it is and maybe they don't even write and then the editor changes in a way, I think that we don't have to blame journalists for doing those kinds of stereotypical representations. It's just how they learned to do, and we do it, like we repeat it. Writing a bit of different texts focused on journalists could be a way of improving it. Yeah, that's really a constructive way of looking at it to create that. We repeat a lot of different stereotypes, either involuntarily or voluntarily, depending on our work and following a set method. That's really interesting. I guess moving to the latter half of our conversation today, Isabella, outside of the world of research, uh, doing all these projects, what are some of the things that you do in your spare time? I love to travel. <laughs> and I think that every academic loves to travel because sometimes I wonder how nice it is to be an academic because you can travel a lot. And uh, this is something that I love not only in conferences, but uh, also in my free time, I'm always trying to do like small day trips in different cities in Germany. And uh, this is what I love to do. I like to go to different places, eating new food and also cooking new food. I like to cook as well. Yeah, so that's really interesting. And I think we have to do lots of different travel for conferences and visiting places, which, you know, makes our academic life quite interesting. So Isabella, I'd like to thank you so much for giving me your time today and sharing your interesting journey and your interesting work. I'd like to wish you all the very best in the rest of your PhD and your future in the academic world. Thanks so much again. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I hope that we can keep connecting and sharing ideas and uh, see you soon, I hope. Thanks again. That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. Let us know what you think of the show and leave us a rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. We'll see you on next month on our next episode. We'll see you next month on our next episode.